Well, I want to invite you this morning to turn with me to the pages of the New Testament and open your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Starbucks Coffee is a name I think should be familiar to all of you, whether you're a coffee lover or not. Uh, I don't know why you're not a coffee lover if you're not. Yeah, amen. So Starbucks is a company that is known to people, not just here in America, but all around the world. I've had the opportunity to, to be in several countries around the world. I've never been to, to one that didn't have a Starbucks, with the exception of the Republic of Belarus. Does not yet have a Starbucks. We'll have to take care of that. Well, birthed in Seattle in the year 1971, Starbucks is currently the largest coffee company in the world and boasts over 25,000 shops worldwide. That's an astounding figure. Howard Schultz, who will continue to serve as the chief executive officer for only a few more weeks, actually, said this. He said, the company we envision is a great enduring one, still zealous about its mission of bringing a great cup of coffee everywhere. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about the, the mission of every person who loves a good cup of coffee could have a good cup of coffee all around the world. A worthwhile goal, in my estimation, it's a pretty good goal since I love a good cup of coffee. But let's think about another kind of a goal, a goal that goes beyond drinking a good cup of coffee, a goal that has significance in mind, a goal that has eternal things in mind. And I want to ask, what would happen if we had a goal to penetrate every person with the gospel all around the world? See, our mission at Christ Fellowship that we rehearse over and over and over again is to, to help people to become fully devoted followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to help people come, become disciples of Jesus Christ. And so this morning as we continue our study on biblical discipleship, I want to drive home an absolutely crucial point. And that is that disciples are called to reach people for Christ. Disciples are called, you see, to make disciples. And so the title of the message this morning is Maximum Impact. And the question I want to pose is this. How can we achieve, as disciples of Jesus Christ, how can we achieve this maximum impact? That is, how can we advance the gospel of Jesus Christ to reach a maximum number of people all around the world? Part of the answer is found in the book of 2 Timothy. I want to have you read that with me as we stand together for the reading of God's Word. 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Paul the Apostle, who writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. 
An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we have this great mission here at Christ Fellowship that we talk a lot about. It's a mission that is... uh, very close to your heart, the mission to make disciples. You have said it before us. We take it seriously. Uh, God, we want to uh, not only learn more about it, but ask that you would be gracious to help us to be effective in, in carrying this great mission out. As we uh, move forward in this year of 2017, I, I pray, God, that you would uh, be merciful, that you'd be so kind to uh, enable us to go into this community and make disciples, that those who would leave this uh, family of of believers to another place to attend a new church. I think of one uh, young couple in particular who we will uh, celebrate with later. I ask that they would continue the mission of discipleship in a new and an exciting place in a new church and that you would bless them in their marriage. God, I pray that you would help us to be bold. You would help us to be courageous. You would help us to be humble followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that this passage you would use in a sovereign way to encourage this, your people. In Jesus' name, amen. How can we achieve a maximum impact in order to reach a maximum number of people, both in this community and all around the world? Second Timothy helps us to unpack an answer, the first of which is this. It's found in verse 1. Paul tells us that if we are to have a maximum impact about, with people in this community and all around the world, we must first develop our spiritual muscles. We must first develop our spiritual muscles. I want to say this. It will be impossible for us to reach people for the great namesake of the Lord Jesus Christ out of a spiritual vacuum. This is one of my favorite sayings, and I found that I I get, uh, some people look at me kind of cross-eyed when I say that, especially young people. Can't minister out of a vacuum, because if you're like me, uh, you you think of a vacuum, and you see yourself, hey, you're with me, all right, you see yourself in that vacuum, and he's like, well, no kidding, you can't minister out of a vacuum. Get out of the vacuum. Here's what I mean. When I say you can't minister or reach people out of a spiritual vacuum, it means if you're going to reach people, you need to know what you're talking about. You need to have a vital relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It would be like this. Uh, Wayne Van Werven, you crossed my mind this morning, and also Rick Strutz, who's out of town uh, for a few days. But here we have two uh, superior mechanics, right? Men who understand all the inner workings under the hood of a car. Now, if you were to ask Wayne or Rick, to explain how that engine works, do you think they could do it? From A to Z, without even thinking about it. Now, if you were to ask me, please don't laugh, (laughs) to do that same task, that would be to perform that task out of a vacuum. This is what it looked like for me. Dave, I I want you to, to show me the inner workings of the engine. I would have a hard time getting the hood up, right? I mean, it, Kirk, you've been there. 
Kyle, you've been there, and I don't know where your dad is, but your dad and you guys have helped me with car problems. And they just laugh at me. They're just like, he, he, he hardly knows how to get into that thing. That's what I mean by ministering or working out of a vacuum. We need to know exactly what it is we're talking about. So if we're to develop our spiritual muscles and we want to make sure that we're not ministering out of a vacuum, we need a plan for growth to make sure that we're not reaching people out of a spiritual vacuum. And that plan for growth is set forth for us in very clear terms in verse 1. And here's what Paul says. He says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That will make sure, that will help us to to, to get us to the point where we're not ministering or reaching people out of a vacuum. Look at verse 1. Paul says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Would you notice with me and pay close attention to that word strengthened? This is a word that comes from the Greek word translated strong, and it simply means to, to confirm or to strengthen. And I want you to understand that when Paul says that we are to be strengthened, this is not a suggestion. This is actually a command. This is an imperative. That is, we are called as disciples before Almighty God to develop our spiritual muscles. Here's some obje- objections you may hear from time to time. Well, pastor, you don't understand. I I don't know much about the Bible. Paul says, be strengthened. You might have someone say, I've only been a Christian a a very short period of time. Paul says, be strengthened. You don't understand. I'm a weak person. Paul says, what? Be strengthened. You don't get it, pastor. I'm kind of a lazy person. You would not believe the number of people that tell me that. I'm a lazy person. How would Paul respond to that person? baloney be strengthened what about the person that says i'm just content right where i'm at i I don't need to grow in my knowledge i don't need to grow in grace paul would say help me be strengthened or one of my favorite excuses i don't have time for this paul would say i could just i could just see him at his desk shaking his head and he would look up and he would say no you need to be strengthened. The present tense of this verb in the Greek language, to be strengthened, means this. It means an ongoing strengthening. This is consistent. It is daily. It is habitual. It is ongoing. That is, we are called as disciples to be strengthened on a daily basis, on a consistent basis. And the means of this strengthening is not personality, It is not what I can do in and of myself. Rather, Paul says it this way, the means of this being strengthened is by the grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. A simple definition of grace. Grace is the merciful kindness by which God touches our lives, turns us to Christ, and strengthens us in the Christian faith. One more time. Grace is the merciful kindness by which God first touches our lives, And then turns us to Christ and strengthens us in the Christian faith. I want you to see in verse 1 that this grace is found exclusively in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, 
Hold your finger in 2 Timothy, and I want to have you look with me literally, and I want to hear the pages turn. If you have a Kindle or an iPad, we'll bear with you, right? But I want to hear the pages turn, and I want to have you look with me at at least four or five passages, because it will be important that you actually gaze upon these particular words. These are all the same words translated from 2 Timothy chapter 2 to be strengthened. First, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, and I hear the pages turning, and I also sense that many of you have Kindles or iPads. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Philippians 4, 13. Here's what Paul says. I can do all things through him who what? Strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The same word appears in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Then go just a few pages back in 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 17. These will all be verses penned by the Apostle Paul. Here he says, But the Lord stood by me, and what did he do? He strengthened me. So that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And we have to read the rest of the verse. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. What happens when we obey? What happens when we submit to God and are strengthened? Great things begin to happen. In the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, and you know this as you're turning as the passage that describes the full armor of God. And as we read about this armor, we begin in verse 10, and Paul sets forth another imperative. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Once again, the Apostle Paul unfolds this word for us. He says, I thank Him who has given me. That is, I, I thank the Father who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. And then look over at one final passage in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 20. And here's what Paul says. Speaking of Abraham here, he says, No unbelief made him waver. That is, no unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God. But notice, he grew what? Strong. There's the word again. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Here's an example, speaking of Abraham, of a man who was about 100 years old, who, as the Bible says, don't you love the Bible? It says he was as good as dead. That's called honesty. He was as good as dead, yet he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. I hope the word of God has convinced you this morning. I hope the word of God has convinced you that to be strengthened spiritually, 
And the grace that the Lord Jesus Christ provides is not optional for you. It is not something to merely think about. Rather, it is a command that is set before you. And so I would ask, if you're convinced, how is it that you on this day could begin to show signs of becoming a spiritual heavyweight? How is it that we we could become spiritual heavyweights? Let me ask, have you ever noticed what happens when you stop exercising? Some of you are like, I never started. Well, okay. (laughs) If you ever engage in a rigorous exercise program, you go several weeks and even months and maybe even years, and you you run or you walk or you cycle or you swim or you you play competitive basketball or baseball or soccer or tennis or you, you golf. Yes, that is a sport. And then you go for a series of of weeks where you you don't do any physical activity and then you go and you get back on the treadmill for instance what happens it's like oh man you walk 10 minutes and feel like you're going to die where before where you're in this habitual pattern of working out and exercising what happens exercise becomes easier Exer- exercise becomes more enjoyable i know some of you are thinking yeah right that never happens But physically, you know, it's easier on your body. Well, when you stop exercising, the facts are you get weak. The facts are you tend to get lazy. The facts are your strength begins to decline. Your strength begins to diminish. And you learn this very important principle that inactivity leads to atrophy. Inactivity leads to atrophy. Atrophy, the same holds true in the Christian life. And so I want to challenge you this morning to, if you have not already begun, to develop an ongoing spiritual training program. An ongoing spiritual training program where you commit to at least four things. And this is not a comprehensive list. This is just to get you started. It would be like this. If if none of you had exercised, I might say physically, what I'd encourage you to do is one thing. Just take a walk every day for a mile. It'll take about 15 or 20 minutes. You can do it. You can do it. That's what we want to do here spiritually, is to take spiritual baby steps by beginning this training program. Here's the first of four things. Begin to spend time, if you don't already, spend time on a habitual basis with God in prayer. You remember what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. This is He prayed a very specific prayer. I want to read it to you. In John 17, we call it the high priestly prayer. He said this. He said, and this is eternal life, that they may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Why do we pray? We pray so that we would know God in a personal and an intimate way. Secondly, Beyond spending time with God in prayer, if we're to be spiritual heavyweights, if we're to engage in this spiritual training program, spend time reading God's Word. Spend time reading God's Word. And not only read the Word of God, but study the Word of God. Paul says in 2 Timothy, to study yourself approved as a workman who who does not have need to be ashamed. And then finally, meditate on the Word of God. Read the Word of God, study the Word of God, and meditate on the Word of God. To meditate is really a farming word. It means to chew the cud. 
It means to, to, to chew the Word of God. It means to digest it. And as a cow does, it brings it back up again. You chew it. You digest it. You absorb it. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he does what? He meditates. He meditates day and night. And then the psalmist describes this man or woman, this boy or girl, who has made a commitment to be in a spiritual heavyweight by meditating on the Word of God. He says this, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So let me encourage you to engage in this spiritual training program and pray that that God will strengthen you by the grace that is yours in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we ever have hope to influence the next generation for the great namesake of Jesus, we must first develop our spiritual muscles. There's a second thing that needs to happen. It's found in verse 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you would turn back there with me. Paul goes on, he says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so first we make this commitment to developing our spiritual muscles, but secondly, we make a decision. We decide... We decide to transfer the torch of truth. There's a challenge here that Paul gives to Timothy, and it is a very serious challenge. And before I set that challenge before you, we need to reconcile or come to grips with some words that emerge in verse 2. He says, and what you have heard from me. What does that make you want to do? What you have heard from me. I hope it makes you want to say, what did you hear from me? And so I want to backtrack just for a minute. It'll only take a a few minutes to see what did the young pastor Timothy hear from the Apostle Paul. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15, Paul provides Timothy with the reason that Christ came. And the reason Christ came is this. He says in 1 Timothy 1.15, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He went from the reason Christ came to the reality of God. 1 Timothy 1.17, I love this verse. He says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, Be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. And then he says that there is a remedy for the wrath. Throughout the New Testament epistles, Paul has clearly unfolded that sinners are separated from God. That sinners are under the the holy wrath of God. Yet he says there's a remedy for wrath. In 2 Timothy 1.9, he says that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own 
purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now, if you're in 2 Timothy, would you look briefly at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14? Because we're going to see here that what Paul unpacks for Timothy is sound doctrine. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me and the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul's challenge to Timothy now, if you drop down to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, his challenge to Timothy is to entrust sound doctrine to the people of God. I know some people think I have a hang-up with theology and doctrine. I can assure you, it's not a hang-up. It's what God has called each of us to do. He has, he has called us to entrust sound doctrine to the people of God. Would you look at verse 2 and mark that word entrust? The word entrust means to set forth. It means to explain. I think the best definition of entrust means this. It means to make a deposit. It means to make a deposit or to entrust a body of knowledge or theology or doctrine to the care of another. It means literally to to make an eternal investment in someone's life that reaps eternal benefits. I have a few volunteers that are going to come up this morning. I want to have uh, Josiah come up and Olivia can make your way up here. And they're going to be my helpers. Olivia, why don't, why don't you stand on this side and Josiah over here. And I'm going to admit something to you. And, and Olivia, you've, I think we've talked about this, but Josiah, you, you don't know this about me, okay? When I learn someone's name for the first time, I usually have some kind of a memory device. And you probably shouldn't ask me what it is that's attached to your name. Sometimes it's probably not very nice. But um, <laughs> with Olivia, Olivia actually, she supplied the learning device for me. Do you remember what you told me? I'll never forget it. You said, my name's Olivia. And you said, here's how you remember it. I want to go to Bolivia someday. I want to go to Bolivia someday. So this is Olivia from Bolivia. <laughs> it's so easy. Now, you didn't, you didn't do that for me, Josiah. So I'm going to tell you how I remember your name. I remember your name because there's a lot of ungodly kings in the Old Testament. But there were a few godly ones. And one of them's name was Josiah. In 2 Kings chapter 22. How old are you? Seven. Do you know, I probably shouldn't tell you this, your parents might have a problem on your hands in about a year, right? Do you know how old Josiah was when he began to reign over Judah? Just guess. He was eight. (laughs) Can you imagine next year if your dad came into your room and said, guess what, Josiah? You're going to be the president of the United States. I wish you could see his face. He's like, wow. So what I want to do is I want to have Olivia and Josiah help me with something. And I'm going to to give you this. And I want you to hold it like that so no one can see. And you hold like that. And let's come over here, Olivia. Stand up here so everyone can see it. And Josiah, come over here. And so let's begin. Which one did I give you, Olivia? Okay, good. And what did I give you, Josiah? I'm going to make, this is just, just for fun, okay? Do you understand this is just for fun? It's not real. You're going to know why in a minute. Or I'm not going to have any money left, right? I'm going to make an investment in King Josiah. 
and Olivia from Bolivia. And I'm going to start with Josiah, and let's see what I gave you. I'm going to give Josiah a coupon, which is this cardboard, for, do you see how much that is? That's $100,000. Why don't you show everyone? Can you just hold that, hold that up and, and let everyone see $100,000? And so I want you to imagine that after church, I'm going to come and I'm going to write a check. And my wife's going to go, you're doing what? Right? We don't have, we don't even have $1,000. You're going to give King Josiah 100 He's the king, right? Would well, you think that would be a pretty good deal? Okay. And Olivia, what, Olivia from Bolivia, so you can go to Bolivia. What I'm going to do for you is for 45 years, I'm going to make an investment with you. This is just for fun, right? This is not real. I know. You have that look like you are. Every week, I'm going to write a check for $50. Every week. That's $200 every month. That's $2,400 every year for 45 years. Now, I just told Josiah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fork over 100 grand for him, right? That's, that's pretty good. Would you take the 100 grand or just 50 bucks a week for 45 years? Uh, 55. 50, um, you take the $50 every week? Josiah, what would you do? You want the 100 grand right up front or you want $50 a week for 45 years? You want the 100 grand. All right. All right. So here, here's what's going to happen. And I don't want you to feel bad, Josiah, but here's what would happen. If I gave Olivia from Bolivia... $50 a week for 45 years. If she had your mom and dad help her invest that money and she received 8% return, and you can have your mom and dad help unpack what that means later, you would have in 45 years over $1 million. Sorry, Josiah. You guys can go sit down. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. You can take those with you. All right. Here's the point of the illustration. By the way, the illustration with Olivia from Bolivia, some of you know that as one of the great wonders of the world, uh, compounding interest. Here's what Albert Einstein said about compounding. He said, compounding interest is the eighth wonder of the world. He who understands it earns it. He who doesn't pays it. That's a great quote. That's a great quote. Listen, the ministry of discipleship in the church, I will be the first to admit, can get very, very discouraging. We pour our lives into people. In the case of Olivia, it's every week. It's $50, $50, $50. And that is just a portrait of what happens in discipleship is you pour yourself into a a young man or a young woman in youth ministry, Jordan and BJ and the Hanawells and and Kayleen and and those of you who are are reaching out to young people and you you get together every Wednesday and you do service projects and, and calls and emails and you love on them week after week after week after week. And sometimes what do you get? I hate to say this to you. You get a whole lot of nothing. Doreen and I spent eight years in youth ministry. And I can tell you with some of those students, they, they're bearing fruit to the glory of God. But I can tell you several others who, who I spent week after week and Doreen spent week after week, day after day, time and energy. And what do you get? Nothing. 
And so discipleship is labor intensive and it can become discouraging. I need to say that if a person is in Christ to invest that in that person, you won't get nothing. You'll get something. Because as we learn at Veritas today that God will conform that person to the image of Christ. He calls disciples to consistently invest in the lives of his people. Paul tells Timothy to invest in faithful people. Literally, people who are worthy of trust, people who can be relied upon, people who trust the promises of God. I like to think of it like this. Paul is telling the young pastor, Timothy, find some guys who are willing to cook in the kitchen. If you're not willing to cook in the kitchen, he's telling them this. Find some guys who are willing to put in the time, who are willing to put in the effort, and you pour your lives into into those people. And as truth is passed from one faithful person to another, what happens? Disciples begin to multiply. I believe that at Christ Fellowship, we are on the cusp of something. Here we have a rather small group of people, but I see discipleship taking place in youth ministry. I see discipleship taking place in jam. I see discipleship taking place in in smaller groups of people around the community and coffee shops and homes and sitting at kitchen tables. I see discipleship in men's ministry and Ironmen. I see discipleship in women's ministry. And I believe we're on the cusp of something really, really special. Let me apply this and make it very practical to you this morning. This is Paul's charge to us, I believe. First of all, I believe that we ought to make a fresh commitment. We ought to make a fresh commitment to hearing the truth. That is that we make corporate worship a priority. Gone are the days when we say, ah, we're going to take several weeks or even months out of the year to do our own thing. Some of you might say, that sounds legalistic. It's not legalistic. It's just good New Testament theology. What do we do? We come together as the people of God where worship is a priority. I've shared in several other settings where when my family goes on vacation, from time to time we'll go on vacation and Sunday will come and Nathan or Abby will say, well, where are we going to church? And I'll say, well, we're not going to go to church today. I remember the first time it happened. (gasps) What? It's Sunday. We go to church on Sunday. That's not legalism. That's a high expectation that, that we created in our family where Sunday comes, you go to church. And so corporate worship is a priority. Personal worship is a priority. We make a fresh commitment to, to hearing the truth. Secondly, we make a fresh commitment to heralding the truth. You say, I'm not a preacher. Oh, yes, you are. If you are in Christ, you have been called to herald the truth. Psalm chapter 48 says, Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation, Grandpa, Grandma, Mom, Dad, that you may tell the next generation that this is our God. Forever and ever, he will guide us forever. How is it that young people hear about the Lord Jesus Christ? It's because mom and dad tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ as they pass the torch of truth to the next generation. And so let me encourage you to to use your spiritual gifts to, to herald the truth, whether it's in the classroom, whether it's in youth group, whether it's in a small group, whether it's in personal relationships, or whether it's merely sitting at the table at your local Starbucks or at Master's Blend sharing the good news. 
with the people of God. Howard Hendricks used to like to say this before he went to be with the Lord. He said, you can impress people at a distance. You can only impact them up close. The general principle, Howard Hendricks says, is this. The closer the relationship, the greater the potential for impact. Thirdly, make a fresh commitment to heeding the truth. We hear the truth, we herald the truth, and we also heed the truth. The Apostle John said this, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Mom, Dad, amen. When you hear that your children are walking in the truth, that that trumps everything. That trumps success, that trumps a successful career, that trumps everything else in life. I have no greater joy, and as a father, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Finally, make a difference one person at a time. Make a difference one person at a time. There's a a famous story that some of you have heard, but some of the rest of you probably could stand to hear it for the first time. And the story is the story of a man. He's an old man and he's walking on the beach. And as he's walking along the beach, he sees up ahead of him, there's a child. And that child is standing on the beach and there are literally thousands of starfish. And he gets closer and he can see that this child is is bending down and he's throwing the starfish into the surf. And so he comes up and the, the old man says to the child, he says... What are you doing? He says, oh, he says, you you don't understand. He says, all these starfish are on the beach. And he said, the hot sun's going to come out later in the day. And if they don't make it into the water, they're going to die. And so I'm going to make a difference. And the old man, being rather ignorant and arrogant, said, oh, my child, there are thousands, thousands of starfish. How will you ever make a difference? And the child bent down and picked up a starfish and hucked it into the ocean. He said, I made a difference with that one. Ah. We are called to make a difference one person at a time. How do we make a maximum difference in the lives of people? We develop our spiritual muscles. We decide to transfer the torch of truth. Finally, we determine to pay the price. And this is where the rubber meets the road. Would you look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3? Paul now sets forth in the way that only he could do with such clarity and creativity, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He provides for us what I like to call three gospel portraits. These are three gospel snapshots that will help us to understand what it means to determine to pay the price. Verse 3, he says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. What's involved in entrusting the truth to faithful people? Well, here are the three gospel portraits. The first one in verse 3 and 4 says, We are to suffer hardship like a soldier. That word suffer means to suffer literally together. You see, this person who is in this model of the soldier, he does not entangle himself with worldly pursuits. He does not entangle himself with worldly ideologies. In fact, one famous Roman had a code, and it went like this. 
This Roman soldier said, We forbid men engaged in military service to engage in civilian occupations. That's a pretty intense statement. The person who suffers hardship like a soldier has one aim. The person who suffers hardship like a soldier has one pursuit, and that is this, to please his commanding officer. And his commanding officer's name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the principle that we can take home. Good soldiers are diligent. Good soldiers are diligent. But there's a second portrait here in verse 5. He says we are to also compete like an athlete. And it's almost as if Paul is providing these, these, these snapshots so that one of you could relate to the soldier metaphor. Another of you could relate to the athletic metaphor. And some of you can relate to the farming metaphor. Here's the athletic metaphor. We are to compete like an athlete. The word compete means to engage in a public competition. It has the idea of striving and also suffering together. And the kind of person that has a maximum influence on the lives of other people is much like an athlete who has a desire to compete in the games. This kind of a person is is willing and determined to pay the price. The principle that we recognize here is that competitive athletes have a deep desire. And all you have to do at this point is think of Russell the muscle. Does that guy have a deep desire? Does that guy want to win? Is he ready to compete? He's the first one on the field. He's the last one off the field. He is the portrait of what we are to be like when we make this commitment to pay the price to transfer the torch of truth to the next generation. Finally, and it's the one that I have the least knowledge about and by far the least understanding about, but he says we are to work hard like a farmer. I don't know anything about farming. It's kind of like automobiles. I have no idea. But hard working here means to grow tired, means to grow weary to the point of exhaustion. Do you know that we have a few farmers here in our church family? That is what these farmers do. They work hard. I know that about farming, that the farmers in our church work hard. When Jerrine and I were in LeGrand at First Baptist, we had a few farmers as well. And these were individuals who worked hard. They were diligent. The principle here is that hardworking farmers are devoted to the cause. They are devoted to the cause. Now, what I want you to do is to look at this chart. And we can see all this in, in one large snapshot. We have the gospel portrait of the soldier who is engaged in the action. He suffers hardship. Why? The reward is he pleases his commanding officer or the athlete. His action is he competes in the games. The reward is the crown or the victory. And then finally, we have the farmer who works hard, who receives the first fruits, his first share in the crops. I want to apply these truths as we bring it all home this morning by giving you two points of application. And the first is this. The first is that we need to remember that as we commit to developing our spiritual muscles, that as we commit to transferring the torch of truth to the next generation and determine to pay the price, we need to remember that ministry is hard work. This probably isn't the most quotable thing you could ever say. Ministry is not for sissies. 
Ministry is not for namby-pambies. Ministry is for real men and real women and real young people who are ready and courageous and they're ready to roll up their sleeves to glorify God by transferring the torch of truth to the next generation. Ministry is hard work. Sometimes, as Paul indicates in this passage, it involves suffering. If you don't believe me, spend a few minutes with Doreen and I and just ask for a few stories. We will share that ministry involves suffering. Like Timothy, like this young pastor, we need to be determined to pay the price to advance the gospel so that we may reach a maximum number of people for Jesus. I believe that as we suffer hardship like this good soldier that Paul talks about, that as we compete like an athlete, that as we work hard like farmers, that God will bless our efforts. And that's why I believe we're on the cusp of something. I know some of you have been discouraged over the last few years. You say, wow, I remember when we had 330 people here, and now we have on a good Sunday 150. Guess what? We're in the right place. We're at the right time. God has ordained all of these events. Yes, there's been suffering. Yes, there's been hardship. Yes, there have been difficult days. And there may be difficult days in the future, but our call, our responsibility is to be faithful before the living God, to develop our spiritual muscles, to determine to pass the torch of truth to the next generation, no matter what the cost. And finally, that we are determined to pay the price. Number two, now I'll close here, is take heart when discouragement sets in. If you don't think discouragement is a part of the ministry, you've never engaged in ministry. There is nothing more discouraging than to pour one's heart and soul and life into another professing follower of Jesus and have that person say, I chuck it all. I was never a follower of Christ to begin with. When we do not see the results that we anticipate, we cling to the promise. And this is one of my favorite verses. Indeed, it is one of my go-to verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. That says, Therefore, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the, the labor in the Lord is not in vain. The prophet Habakkuk says this, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Do you know that is the ultimate aim of God? That verse? That the glory of God would spread around the cosmos. And did you know that God could have chosen any method to bring that to pass? His chosen method, however, is something that continually amazes me. His chosen methodology to bring this glory to pass throughout all the cosmos is to use Frank and to use Leona and to use Jake and Kendra. It's so good to see you. To use Aunt Shirley, to use Ken, to use Tan. He, he uses, he, please don't take this personally, he uses goofy people like us. Can you believe that? He could have just said, glory over the face of the cosmos. He could have done it. He has the power to carry it out. But he uses a goofball like me. And he uses goofballs like you. Sinners like you and me. To spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ. For the joy of the nations. 
His chosen method is through people, people who transfer the truth to other people who multiply it in the lives of others. How do we advance the gospel to reach a maximum number of people? I hope you have it memorized by this point. In fact, I don't think I need to put the truth point up. We will, though. Is The answer is that we develop our, our spiritual muscles. We develop our spiritual muscles and we, we determine in our hearts that we will transfer the torch of truth to the next generation. And finally, we determine to pay the price all for the glory of God. Let me tell you as your pastor, I am, I am excited about the future. I'm excited about what God's doing here. Look in the lobby and the work that the facilities ministry action team has done with a host of other volunteers There's a lot of really good things happening, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. The best times are still to come. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for helping us to uh, uncover yet another aspect of biblical discipleship. What a joy it is to follow your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would breathe, breathe strength and courage and fresh resolve into this, your people, this morning that you would uh, give us the ability to move forward in a faithful way, in a way that honors the Lord Jesus Christ, in a way that would be best for the people in this community. There are so many people here who have never heard the gospel. There are people in this community who have never heard the name Jesus Christ, at least spelled out in a way that honors him. So give us the ability, give us the desire to transfer the torch of truth to people that need to hear it most. In Jesus' name, amen.